It's Tuesday, March 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Pro and Motley Fool Options, Jeff Fisher. Good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Chris. Oh, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the smartwatch industry because, <laughs> yes, there is apparently a burgeoning smartwatch industry. We're going to talk about maybe the most awesome story in apparel retail this year. We will dip into the full mailbag, but we will start... As we did yesterday, we will start with Cyprus. Um, as we are taping this, I believe the parliament in Cyprus is uh, getting ready to vote on the $13 billion bailout of the banking industry. They are, by all accounts, going to reject the deal that is on the table because they are politicians and they want to get reelected. And you don't get reelected, Jeff, when you're... <laughs> You're <laughs> like implementing the, the bank account, raiding the bank accounts of your voters, uh, and then I guess it's back to the negotiating table with the leaders of the EU. But where do you see this going right now? Because one of the things we talked about on yesterday's show was, and Tim Hansen was the one who made this point. He was stunned that pe- that there wasn't greater panic, that there wasn't more of a run on banks, and I'm wondering. If this vote goes down, do we get one, two, or 20 steps closer to a run on banks? Right. Tim was worried uh, about greater Europe, Spain and Greece and elsewhere. In Cyprus itself, uh, people withdrew as much money as they could over the weekend. They drained the ATMs. Right. Now banks have been closed and will be closed until Thursday. The president is very concerned. He says if this goes through, we could lose as much as 10% or more of the $65 billion we have deposited in the banks Thursday morning when the banks open. Right. And I think that actually sounds conservative. Who who wouldn't try to go, go take all their money out? Where I think this has to go is they have to strike this down. It, it, it's, it's, it should be dead on arrival. Yeah. Then they have to go back to, to the EU and renegotiate this. I don't know what the EU is thinking, if they hadn't thought this through one step, let alone two steps, or if they did think it through and thought this is a way to put Spain and Greece and everyone on watch that we're very serious and you have to meet certain uh, certain uh, limits or you won't get your bailout. So I don't know if it was a, a shot over the bow, like a warning shot to everyone, and this is the cheapest, littlest country yeah. over which to fire <laughs> that shot, or if they just made a bonehead decision. I, I like to think it's the former and that this is a, a calculated message they're sending to the greater EU world. Jason, um, I don't own any bank stocks, and these are the types of stories that that, uh, that go into the massive list of why I don't own bank stocks. Um, are we, just as we are, maybe one or two steps closer to a run on banks in Europe, are we still pretty contained here in the U.S.? In oh, terms of- yeah. I mean, I think we're very contained here. And I think, if anything, this is certainly – this makes our banks and banking system look all that much better. Uh, shareholders and, and depositors uh, the like have to feel a little bit more protected. I mean, this, like we said yesterday, all boils down uh, to trust, which is evaporating very quickly. And, uh, you know, what uh, banks exist for that very reason. I mean, the, the depositors trust that they deposit their money in the bank and they're going to be able to get it and earn a, a, you know, a healthy rate of return on whatever the interest rate may be. Um, you know, I, I was reading through this earlier and I think, you know, we were, we were kind of making fun yesterday of the fact that this was a relatively creative decision that no one really expected. Uh, and I, I do feel like it's something that they have to probably shoot down because, I mean, it's just, it, it's just patently unfair. And, 
regardless of, of how small Cyprus really is, it's still big to the people who are there. Uh, but I was reading about this. It, it was actually, to me, it's probably the most creative solution thus far, and it protects depositors all the way through. At least it gives them some time to try to get this figured out. It's a, it was a little three-page report uh, written by uh, Mr. Buckheit and Gulati. Uh, essentially consists of two parts. Number one, all deposits of 100 euros and less, you don't touch them. They don't. They, you take nothing from them. There's no tax, no penalty whatsoever. From that point on, with depositors of, of greater than 100,000 euros, you essentially term out their deposit holdings, turn those savings accounts into CDs with either five- or ten-year terms. Now, what this does is it gives the bank at least a, a, a deposit base immediately to try to deal with the shortfall. You're basing the rate of the return on those CDs, if you can stretch them out five to ten years, on the potential gas revenues that could be brought in from from Cypriot gas reserves. Now, the biggest problem there is that the gas reserves in Cyprus aren't necessarily uh, proven to this point. But the bottom line is what it does is it gives them time to work this solution out, as well as protecting the depositors, which really, I think, at least keeps whatever trust you have remaining left. It, it was another creative solution. I thought it, it was worth at least entertaining. And however the vote goes down uh, in the coming hours, it, the confidence, as you guys talked about yesterday, is shaken enough that money's going to be drawn out on Thursday when banks open, and the repercussions will you know, radiate from Cyprus to other countries, depending on how much money is drawn out, how much fear there is when banks open. Uh, but the bottom line is what we're doing in all these countries that are, are greatly in debt is we're trying to find a way to forestall what is possibly inevitable. I mean, how is this country going to raise enough revenue the coming years to get itself out of debt and provide a, a half-decent life to, to its citizens, you know, with this much debt hanging over it? So from Greece to Spain to Cyprus – we're just we are just pushing things forward uh consequences forward and and eventually a shoe has got to drop uh jason you mentioned uh, or referenced the people in cyprus uh and this is one of the reasons i love twitter because last night there was a a tweet from a gentleman named uh, michael sangaris i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly probably am not um who just wrote on twitter your dozens of listeners extends all the way to cyprus and so we traded some messages back and forth and i said look if you have any thoughts uh, we're getting ready to tape the show um send me what you think and let me just read a couple of comments from his email uh that he sent right uh, and i just printed this out right before we came in the studio um, this is a guy who lives in Cyprus. He, he writes, one of the largest thoughts I have about the bailout is that somehow all the noise has covered up the fact that the banks have done a terrible job over the past few years and that management has gotten away with it and not only uh, received, uh, not only gotten away with it, but has also received excessive bonuses. As proud as I am about being a Cypriot, having served from my country uh, for two years in the National Guard and all the cliches that come with it, such as the feta. Do I pronounce that right? Feta? Feta? I, I believe feta it was feta. Um, and then he puts, oh, in, feta cheese. Yeah, he puts in parentheses, which, by the way, <laughs> if it's not from Cyprus, it's nowhere near as good. Uh, he goes on to write, I'm amazed how businesses are run. One main factor is that there are no analysts covering stocks in Cyprus, which, while in the United States, Wall Street is sometimes seen as bad. Uh, by being scrutinized by analysts, they can keep management in check. And I, I, I think that's a, that's a great sort of overall point. Like, hey, as crazy as this bailout may seem and it's going to get rejected, 
these people did a horrific job of managing these banks. They did, and I think I, I walk away from this with two final takeaways, and I think we could probably uh, move on. But number one, recognize the fact that about half these deposits are represented by Russian interests. So you have the specter of Vladimir Putin in, in here as well, uh, and I don't know that you really want to make them so angry. But that's something at least they have to consider, and they're probably going to have something to do with the decision that's made. Uh, but the other thing is, and you mentioned not owning any bank stocks. We talked about this yesterday. Uh, Tim Tim making, uh, I think, the very astute observation that when we're looking at bank stocks, you're really looking for something, at least Eurozone-wise, plain vanilla. Uh, but furthermore, I think it really – you keyed in on something. They did a har- they've done a horrible job investing this money. And it's just, to me, another reason why, rather than looking at bank stocks, I tend to want to look to really well-run insurers. And I bet you Angry Uncle Joe would agree with, at least to a degree, (laughs) um, he does have Wells Fargo and Inside Value. But when we look at companies like Markel and Berkshire Hathaway, that's why we tout these guys so much. Because they do, they have such a great track record, do such a great job investing that money. Granted, insurance operations are state, uh, you know, they're overseen by the state, which which makes it a little bit more more well-managed, I believe, a little bit more oversight, but still, uh, the record speaks for itself. These guys know how to invest their money. They do a great job, and I think that investors uh, would be wise to take that into consideration. It's a good reminder, too, how potentially just one investment, if you make it too large, can really decimate your your portfolio. The, from what I've read, Cyprus, the problems began, they invested too much money in, yeah, in Greek gr- sovereign debt. Right. <laughs> and so we all remember that the haircut those debt holders were forced to take, and yep. that's it was almost immediately after that that Cyprus had to go seeking its own bailout. All right, we will wrap that up. Thank you again to Michael for his email. Samsung has confirmed it is developing a smartwatch. Um, uh, there have been rumors about Apple working on one, but those have not been confirmed. This but... rumor must confirm that <laughs> Apple is making one. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I think it might. Um, Sony already has one on the market for one hundred thirty dollars. I don't I don't know if uh, if Samsung is targeting something like that or something maybe more robust. But uh, look, Jeff, uh, <laughs> what I know about technology and uh, it fits into a thimble. But I just I I don't wear a watch. And this is not going to make me wear a watch. And I have to believe that for people who enjoy wearing a watch, they like having a timepiece. You know, they like a Rolex, a Fossil, you know, Swatch, Guess, whatever. I'm not seeing this. I I guess where I'm going is I'm not seeing this. Are you seeing this? Chris, it's it's too bad you're asking me. (laughs) Because before the show we were talking and both of us agreed we haven't worn a watch for 20 years or so. And especially now that we have phones that tell us the time. So for me, it just depends on what. This thing will do. Yeah, uh, the the whistles and bells and whistles on it, because if it and the design, if it was, I don't know. Like I look at Google Glass and I think maybe maybe I could have that sometime. It, it looks cool enough. Maybe sometimes I'd wear it. If a watch came out that sometimes I'd get great utility out of it, maybe I would buy it. What struck me though is disingenuous from Sam, Samsung CEO was he said in the quote that. They have been working on this smartwatch for a very, very long time. <laughs> and I just, uh, come on, really? they haven't even had smartphones out for that long. But how so. long is that, really? I mean, is that like a few months or a <laughs> couple of weeks? Maybe an internet time, yes. Yeah. Well, you're, I think you're, you're both exactly. I mean, it's if you want to wear a watch, then you want to wear I mean, I, I am I, I have a watch. I wear a watch. This watch will probably stay on my arm until, until the day I die. I mean, it was... Uh, 
but it's it's a watch a that, I, that I love. And well, it's just I, I, it's a nice watch, and I like it a lot. But I don't know that I would ever supplement that with some kind of other device. Like you have the Nike Fuel Band that kind of started some okay, of this, okay, right? Yeah. And so, so I could see that as someone managing sort of their lifestyle, their exercise, their fitness, whatever. Uh, who knows really what this I, Apple I or Samsung product, yeah, to, product will do? To play do. off of of that and what what Jeff was indicating, it, I, I think it depends on the feature. So if yeah. it is some, so, you know, the Nike, you know, the one watch that I own is a, a timing watch um, for when I'm running in a race, so I can look down and and just oh, oh that's how slow that mile was, <laughs> that sort of thing. So uh, if it's very focused, um, but I just have for all the things that a smartphone can do. It's hard for me to get my head around a smart watch, a small device that would do all of those things. So if instead, to your point, Jason, it's, it's focused on one area where it's, it's an athletic smart watch or it's a, uh, something for your home where you can run your, you know, the devices in your home, your TV, your lights, your power, all that sort of thing. But I just can't imagine that it's going to do all the things that, a Galaxy S4 or an iPhone would do. Right. You, you know what I think it would do, and this is just a guess, but if Samsung wants to hire me, I, <laughs> I would think it would do, what do people do most on their smartphones? And I, it probably boils down to talking a little bit. and uh, texting. texting. and then checking Facebook and Twitter. And if you have a smartwatch that can do all that, and that's that's a rumor that surprised me, you you can make a call on this smartwatch. So it serves as a phone as well. Uh, so if you can have it on your wrist, make calls, text, tweet, whatever, Facebook, kind of call it a social watch. Keep in touch with people that way. But still, uh, what sort of demographic are you? Uh, yeah, I think you're eliminating today? probably half the population that <laughs> likes to wear watches. I mean, because that just, I don't think that's a compelling enough. I'm perfectly happy to reach into my pocket and grab my phone. Yeah. You know, I mean. It'll be worth watching, though. Yes, so to be continued. Ha, no uh, pun intended. Uh, Sorry. Uh, you can always email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Got an email from Paul White in England uh, on our conversation yesterday about the, the new Iron Maiden beer. Um, he writes, at the risk of being a little pedantic, Chris mentioned the new Iron Maiden beer brewed at Stockport Brewery, whereas it is actually brewed by Robinson's, a 175-year-old brewery located in the town of Stockport. Uh, which is just a few miles southeast of the home of Manchester United. Uh, and he signed it, Paul, a regular listener, located a few miles south of the Robinsons Brewery, who, FYI, do brewery tours the next time you're in the area. So that's that's, right. that's, a, that's a helpful hint. Uh, it just all goes back to Matt Greer's uh, idea that he hammers time and time again, which is uh, we're just going to have to take the show on the road at some point. It's just an excuse I to do the show. I think it's a six-month tour at this point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at this point, we've lined up a nice sort of a backlog of, of stops. It's I think like we do. Uh, before we get to our final story, uh, we have a guest uh, on the other side of the glass today, a young man. Uh, by the name of Harrison Blaine, who is a seventh grader, um, uh, who is uh, taking a couple of days. His school has a program where where kids can uh, essentially design their own um, uh, sort of time away from school to learn about something, uh, sort of a step up from, you know, go to work with your parents and that sort of thing. Um, and so he designed a program. He's a seventh grader who wanted to learn about investing. He's interested in investing, owns a couple of stocks. Um, and uh, once again, just a great reminder of how incredibly unmotivated I was as a seventh grader because something like this would never enter my mind. But I thought um, if you guys, um, you, you both have children, you're presumably teaching them about money and investing. So for Harrison, one piece of invent, uh, investing advice, and because – He's a young guy. 
give me a long-term stock, like one stock for 50 years, like if he was going to buy it and it's going to be around in 50 years. Jeff, I go to you first. All right, Harrison. Well, the first thing I'll say is this will be very hard for you to, to internalize as you're only in seventh grade, but the more that you can learn patience, the better. And I know as a child, when you're waiting for the holidays, which are three months away, that can seem like forever. <laughs> it's forever for me. So yeah, it's definitely forever for a child. But you're starting so young, which is so great, that if you can then put your money in good companies and watch to make sure as, as long as they merit your, your investment, then be patient, not try to trade in, out, in and out of them, not when they have a bad year or two, let it keep going as long as you believe in the longer term. Because if you're investing now, then 10, 20 years from now, that could completely change your life, your financial life. So the more patient you can be, and that, that's from start to finish, patiently look through companies, find ones that you really want to own and see good reasons to own, and then own them for as long as you possibly can, as long as you possibly believe that you should. And before you know it, for better or worse, you'll be in your 20s and then your 30s, and you'll be doing very well financially. And that's when we'll come and hit him up for money. Now, if you want a stock idea, I don't know that I can deliver that. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, what about you? I, geez, wow, very commendable. I love that you're getting into this age. Uh, I have you know, eight and six year old daughters that I'm kind of getting into the swing of things as well. And you know, Jeff, Jeff keyed in on a really important uh, quality of, of investing. The more patience you can have, the, the better. Um, I think another another one is just to make sure to stick with things you understand. I mean, I think it's really easy for us to have sort of this mentality, especially uh, in this sort of headline-driven world, that the more difficult an investment sounds, the, the better it must be. And, and I really think that, you know, nine times out of ten, that's not the case. So uh, it's not very hard to do really well as an investor. You need patience, and I think you just need to stick with the things that you understand and you know. And if you can stick with the things that you understand and that you know that are interesting to you, I, I think really the sky's the limit. Uh, you came in here today mentioning a couple of stocks that you kept your eye on, one that you liked is Under Armour, and I like that too. I think it's still a very small company in relation to how, how far it can grow. I've uh, done a lot of research into Kevin Plank and sort of the story behind that company. I'm a believer in him. So uh, I, I think that Under Armour is certainly a great one to keep an eye on. And I'll also throw a bonus in there as Markel. We were talking about insurers. You can guarantee that we're going to have coverage of Markel in perpetuity here at Fool.com. So <laughs> <laughs> Under Armour and Markel, two good ones. Shares of Lululemon are down more than 5% this morning. Uh, the company has pulled its popular black yoga pants from the shelves after it realized that the sheer material used to make the pants was, in fact, too sheer, uh, revealing more than some of the customers would like. Let's just take, uh, let's just take a five seconds uh, for uh, listeners out there. Just go ahead and make your own joke. Okay. Um, uh, the company also lowered first quarter guidance uh, due to the fact that sales are going to be lower, due to the fact that they pulled clothing from the show. How did this happen? How, how does a clothing company not realize that the fabric is see-through? How does that happen? The bottom line here, Chris, oh. is we have growing pains. <laughs> And a, a supply chain issue. This is the fourth quality control issue the company has had in the last year. And they've gone from $270 million in sales in 2008 to $1.2 billion last year. So uh, now, these all these pants that are basically see-through <laughs> unintentionally <laughs> came from a single supplier in Taiwan. They price out at about $80 to $100 in a, in a store. So you would expect them to, to do what they're meant to do. 
And about 17% of pants in the company's stores are affected by this, so they're, they're pulling all those off the shelves. The bigger problem is, you know, people go into the stores to buy pants, shorts, tops, jackets, and if you can't get the pants part, why go there at all? Right. So, again, the fourth quality control issue in the last year, and they just they need to work out their supply chain and, and nail down the quality. Yeah, I mean, regardless of the investment, I think this just brings up the the greater question investors need to consider in looking at companies that they're, that they're thinking of investing in is the power of suppliers in that relationship because it's not always the same. You know, Lululemon doesn't make those clothes. They they have companies and they contract out to have those clothes made for them. And so uh, just digging through the 10K, for example, I found that they work with a group of, of 45 manufacturers and five of those manufacturers produce about 67% of the products that they sold in 2011. So they are pretty dependent on just five manufacturers. And the important part there to understand is these manufacturers are the ones who get and source the material for the clothing. So Lululemon doesn't have a lot of of really transparency, so to speak, in that relationship. I mean, they're. Well, I guess that was a no bad one. That was unintended. <laughs> uh, but it is one of those things where there there is a there is a trust factor there. But I think it shows that when you when we look at companies, we consider you know competitive positions and relationships with suppliers and buyers. I think that considering the power of suppliers and and the, their position in that relationship is one that really needs to be uh, to be paid attention to. Yeah, and the company said one risk they face is. Uh, too few suppliers, but on the other, on the flip side of that, that can be an advantage because you can keep a much closer eye on them and the quality of what they're supplying. Exactly, and like we talk about with Apple all the time, if you know the products that Lululemon is selling or, or Apple is selling prove to be very popular and they sell a lot, well, that's great for the suppliers because it's, it's almost automatic business for them too. Do you think so, there's going to be a black market that springs up maybe on eBay? Like this, these become like classic Lululemon uh, yoga pants. <laughs> Maybe not. I, w- I would I, not I put that past so. anyone. Yeah, I would not I, put that past anyone. I don't see what utility they really have in well, that's public. Like, that's the point, really, right? All right. <laughs> Email us, radio at fool.com. Send us your best Lululemon transparency joke about being caught with their pants down. All right, Jason Moser, <laughs> Jeff Fisher. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.